I can't get enough magical jewelry, as you've probably guessed. And so I'm so happy that my friends at Blessed Be Magic have just launched three new talisman cuff bracelet designs. Their bracelets are elegant, stylish, and adjustable, and they're subtly engraved with spellbinding words such as so mode it be, so grateful, and my favorite, charmed, because you know I can't resist a double meaning. All of the jewelry by Blessed Be Magic is created to take you deeper into the practice of recognizing and owning your power. And now you can enjoy 15% off any of Blessed Be Magic's jewelry by using offer code WITCH. So go to blessedbemagic.com, that's magic spelled M-A-G-I-C-K, and use offer code WITCH for 15% off today. Blessed Be. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello, hello! It's the season finale of The Witch Wave, and our summer solstice episode to boot, and oh my goodness, do we have a special guest for you today. Now, if you've listened to earlier episodes of the podcast, or you're just a fan of pagan etymology, you know that the word solstice comes from the Latin word sol, which means sun, and sistere, which means to stand still. The two solstices of the year, winter solstice and summer solstice, are when the sun appears to be standing still in the sky, and they mark the shortest and longest days of the year, respectively. Here in the northern hemisphere, summer solstice is a long, languid day of light, and one that we also celebrate as the official start of summer. And just as the sun supposedly stands still and then signals summer vacation, I've decided to continue the tradition I started last year and take the summer off from podcasting. Now, this was a really tough decision because I have so many incredible guests that were lining up for season three, and I'm really eager to get those episodes rolling. But I also believe in recharging one's batteries and taking time to relax and regroup. So that's what I'll be doing this summer, along with some events, which you can check out on my personal website, pamgrossman.com. And you can also sign up for my newsletter there if you want to make sure you don't miss anything. And of course, I'll be continuing to post on my personal Instagram account at Phantasmophile, and we'll keep giving the Witchwave Pod Instagram account some love too. I feel I must say that I adore the fall 
just like most witches do, and I definitely look forward to that season. But despite my sensitive, pale exterior, I actually really love the summer as well. It's the time of the year I associate with childhood and innocence and play, and that part of my psyche and my life is one that I really value and never want to grow out of. While it's true I learned more formal spellcasting when I was in my teens, when I think back to the games I played and stories I loved as a child, it's clear that I was learning about magic from a very young age. I was a kid in the 1980s, a time of fantastical cartoons like She-Ra and Strawberry Shortcake and Rainbow Bright and The Star Fairies, and films like Labyrinth and The Neverending Story. I had tomes of fairy tales that were precious to me, and I pored over books like the Time Life Mysteries of the Unknown series and the Encyclopedia of Things That Never Were by Michael Page and Robert Ingpen. I also went to summer camp when I was little, my favorite being a performing arts sleepaway camp in the woods of Pennsylvania. There, I got to play roles like Lola in Damn Yankees. My purple braces were very sultry, let me tell you. And amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat-wearing Joseph, which in our production was painted to look like rainbow butterfly wings. It was at this camp where I met a gothy, combat boot-wearing artist counselor named Nico, who took me under her wing as she recognized a budding little weirdo in me. She was one of the first adults, though she was probably only a teenager at the time, who modeled for me that you could keep following the beat of your own strange drum as you got older. She loved my sketchbook filled with surreal drawings of mermaids and fairies and bloody ballerinas, and she encouraged me to keep being myself. I still have a letter she wrote to me before opening night of one of my plays. The envelope reads, To my dear Pamela Goddess, and it has a drawing of a crescent moon and star. At one point in the letter, she writes, quote, My biggest fear is that one day people will all be alike. No individuality, no spirituality. That would be the worst, unquote. And at the end of the note, she writes, quote, Never lose sight of your goals. Follow your heart. Always be spontaneous and live every day as if it's another page in a good book, unquote. That is sage wisdom for anyone, but especially for a peculiar preteen like me. Nico represented a potential grown-up future full of art and magic, one that I'm not sure I ever considered possible before I met her. She showed me that getting older doesn't mean you have to let go of the things that enchant you. One of my very favorite artists, the surrealist painter and magic scholar Kurt Seligman, wrote, quote, 
In every man, there is a child that yearns to play. And the most attractive game is occultation mystery. Unquote. Gendered language aside, I love this statement. Yes, adults can and do believe in magic, and I think most of us long for it. The key to maintaining one's connection with it is to stay playful and curious, to keep honoring and evolving your imagination, and to let yourself get lost in wonder. It's these concepts that I discuss at length with my spectacular guest, Julia Pott, the creator of the animated TV show Summer Camp Island. I'm giddy at the prospect of sharing our conversation about teen witch camp counselors, the shimmering mystery of childhood, and the magical emotional landscape that dwells inside young hearts. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Catherine writes, I've always identified with the archetype of the witch, and I'm starting to become more out-of-the-broom-closet about it. I've dabbled in various aspects of New Age-slash-alternative-slash-pagan spirituality off and on throughout my life, and I want to continue making this more intentional. However, I've had a couple of negative experiences that I'd love to hear some insight on, as well as things I can do to avoid having these types of experiences in the future. Basically, there are two times— once when I was a child playing with a Ouija board and another in college with tarot cards that I, along with my participating friends, attracted spirits. While I recognize that visiting spirits are often just that, visitors, it scared me. It's made me reluctant to move forward with my practices as an adult. Do you have any suggestions for rituals for protecting myself against unwelcome visitors? Thank you so much. Hi, Catherine. I remember experimenting with Ouija as a kid and playing all kinds of other occult games like light as a feather, stiff as a board, and yes, getting completely freaked out by it. And still, as an adult, I've had my fair share of uncanny goings-on that gave me goosebumps and had the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Yes, absolutely, there are things you can do before you begin doing any kind of magic or divination or ritual to make sure that the energy you're surrounding yourself with is protective and positive. Casting a magic circle is one excellent method for this, and that's one of several reasons why many of us do it. And there are so many different ways to cast circle that we could probably give it its own episode. So for now, I'll just say, do a little bit of research and then try whatever version feels right to you. But some other tried and true methods for keeping things positive are to burn herbs like cedar or sage taking a natural salt bath, or wearing or holding protective stones like obsidian or black tourmaline. Essentially, what you're trying to engage in is what's called 
apotropaic magic, which is a fancy word for protective magic. And again, there are so many different ways to do this. Sometimes you don't even need items, but instead just have to meditate for a bit and picture a glowing sphere of light around you. Glinda the Good Witch wasn't floating around in a bubble for nothing, okay? My favorite method for scaring away bad spirits or bad energies that I was taught is to flash them while laughing your ass off. (laughs) But all of that said, I'd love for you to consider something else. Sometimes the things that scare us are actually benevolent couriers who just happen to be delivering a message that might be unpleasant, but that we really need to hear so we can grow. Just remember that you are brave and strong, and facing your fear can sometimes be the most protective magic there is. You got this. Now, on to my guest. Julia Pott is an animator and illustrator who is the creator of one of my very favorite shows, Summer Camp Island, on Cartoon Network. Her award-winning animated shorts such as Belly, The Event, and My First Crush have played at festivals worldwide, including Sundance, South by Southwest, and Tribeca. She's also done animations for bands, including Bat for Lashes and The Decemberists, and for brands such as Oreo and Toyota. Julia was named one of the 10 animators to watch by Variety in 2017, and she was also a staff writer for the legendary Cartoon Network show Adventure Time. On this episode, Julia discusses the bewitching feelings of childhood, the ways that comfortable spaces can conjure risky ideas, and the very real magic that inspires her seriously whimsical work. Julia joined me via Skype from her office in L.A. Julia Pott, welcome to the Witch Wave. Hi, Pam. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited that you're here. Summer Camp Island is one of my favorite shows, animated or otherwise. So it is a real treat to talk to you. (laughs) Thank you so much. That means so much to me. I'm, I'm glad you like it. Oh, I love it. I love it. So for those who are listening to this podcast because they generally expect talk about witches and witchcraft, which we will absolutely be getting into, I did want to make sure they just got a little bit of background about the show and what you do. So I think you're probably better than I am at describing what the show is about exactly. Can you give people a little synopsis? So it's about a magical summer camp where All of the kids, seemingly normal kids, go to the island. They're dropped off by their parents. And as soon as the parents leave, everything on the island comes to life. So the camp counselors are actually three teenage witches and there are monsters and yetis and aliens and everything is alive and the inanimate objects talk. And it's sort of just feeding into that idea from when you're a kid that everything is possible and that there's sort of an essence in everything and all of your suspicions were correct. 
parents are hiding all these things from you, that everything is is secretly magical. That's sort of what's been introduced in the first 20. And then there's more coming out in a few weeks, which sort of gets more into the lore of the world and witchcraft and magic and the backstory of everything, which I'm really excited for everyone to see. That's the basic concept of the show. Yes, it's so wonderful. And the two main characters, there's a boy named Oscar, who's kind of an anthropomorphized elephant, and a girl named Hedgehog, who is indeed a hedgehog. Though, (laughs) spoiler alert, she gets other powers as the season goes on, the first season. And so I was curious, what is it about animals in particular that you find so fascinating? Because I was watching a few of your beautiful shorts animated films online too and those are anthropomorphized animals as well I mean it all started when I was back in college I used to draw people a lot and then I started drawing animals just to sort of have change it up and I was a big fan of Creature Comforts growing up which was an Aardman show where they interview people in real life and then animate animals saying them like in zoos and outside and it sort of adds an extra layer of humor to what they're saying about being cooped up in their apartment or something and then there's like a lion in a, in a zoo cage and I was so tickled by that and so I started doing animals instead and I sort of grew up loving anthropomorphized things I loved E.T. and I loved Gizmo and Gremlins. It's easier for you to see yourself in those characters because it's not such a mirror. And there's like a cuteness and a softness to it. So it's easier to sort of see these like human things that they're going through and think that it's funny, but also be able to relate to it more. That's sort of how I always felt about it as well. And I feel like we're all kind of just little animals. I really like that Mary Oliver quote where she says, let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. There's this animal quality to us that we're always kind of ignoring, but I I like to tap into that. And I thought that going into this magical world, everyone was always questioning, well, is it special that they're animals? And I was like, no, you should see them as human beings just going through these magical experiences. But yeah, it makes me laugh. (laughs) I love it too. And of course, the three camp counselors are witches, but they're also animals as well. And not only have you created Susie, the head camp counselor, who is a teen witch, but she's also a cat. And you play her as well. You do the voice for her. How did that come about? Did you plan on being one of the characters in the show from the beginning? I did not. (laughs) It was as much a surprise to me as anybody else. Susie sort of came in later in the show. In the pilot, she's not really present. It's just Oscar and Hedgehog. And then when we got into the actual show, there was this idea that we wanted an antagonist. And I always growing up, I really hated just straight villains, like people that were mean For no particular reason, I wanted to create this well-rounded character that had this sort of bubbly, angry energy inside of her, but it seemed kind of justified and she seemed complicated and fast became my favorite character, much like I think they brought in Angelica and the Rugrats to sort of bring like so that the softness was balanced out by a more uh, aggravated character. Yes. And she's just so easy to write for. I, I just put everything in her that like you secretly think but would never say or just like your most animalistic instincts went into Susie and Whenever we pitched the show, I would do the voice for her when I pitched storyboards. And then we were auditioning people and it just sort of, I would be line reading to the people auditioning and they were doing a great job, but there was just such a specificity to the way that she said things. And also because she, we wanted her to be British. In the end, it was just like, well, let's just try it out. And if it doesn't work, we'll cast a real actress. And 
I loved it so much. It felt so fun. And I was like, please don't take this away from me, even if I'm a bad actress. I really like it. And it gets you in tune with the character a lot more as well when you're writing for her, if you know that you're going to be speaking those lines. I think I understand her more than anyone else on the show. Absolutely. Now, I love this idea of a multi-dimensional villain because that is one of the reasons I love witches in general. It's this very elastic archetype and it's this full spectrum of kind of the feminine experience. There are good witches and wicked witches and everything in between. And you're right, Susie, she's kind of a tyrant. I mean, she makes up all these rules. She's constantly calling the kids babies and being really condescending to them and bossing them around. But there's also something about her that's awesome. Like, I love that she's always feeling herself. Like, she just (laughs) thinks she's beautiful and amazing and everyone should bow down to her. And she has a little bit of pathos, too, as I think most of your characters do. So what made you want to develop Susie as kind of that antagonist? What, What ingredients were you trying to put into her character? I think as the story progresses and you'll sort of see in the coming up episodes, you kind of learn why she is the way that she is, that she's sort of been through a lot of pain and that things have happened to her and they've built to have this sort of, it's kind of like a protective mechanism and that she has some sweetness to her as well. And it sort of builds to see that like, yeah, that that magic maybe wasn't always just on this island and that she sort of has a part in that. It's just everyone is multidimensional and no one is just straight, sweet or straight. And all of the characters get more complicated as the show builds. Hedgehog has kind of a dark side and she's getting into witchcraft too. And I do think there is like what's so fascinating about witches to me is that other than maybe a yeti or something like that, it's familiar and unfamiliar, which I think is what's so jarring to some people is like that your body could contain all of this magic. I think what people connected to the most was because she's complicated in the way that everybody is complicated. And I think often cartoon characters can become quite black and white. And I just want to just try as hard as I could to create someone that seemed genuinely real. Absolutely. I think you bring that dimensionality to Oscar and Hedgehog too. And one of the things I really appreciate about those characters is Oscar is a boy, Hedgehog is a girl, and there's not really any romantic frisson between them. They just really love each other and they're best friends and they're helping each other kind of cope with their different anxieties and expectations. And I wondered if you could comment a little bit about your decisions to build their relationship in that way. I mean, in the pilot, Oscar and Hedgehog, there was a romance between them, or it was Oscar had a crush on Hedgehog. He sort of discovers over the course of the pilot, he touches her arm and it's very soft and you can just see him brewing these feelings and having a crush on her. And I never really questioned that in the pilot. And then as we got into the, into the show, we were like, oh, and then at the end of the 20, we'll, we'll tease this out and we'll find out that he has a crush on her. And then as we got deeper and deeper into it, I was just like, I don't want to, I love this space that they're in and I never want them to leave it. I want them to just be best friends and for that to be it and this unconditional friendship. And it became based a lot on me and my friendship with my friend Tom Brown, who lives in New York. And we've been best friends for years and there's never been anything romantic on the table. You feel so seen and accepted. And I think friendship is the kind of thing, it gets cast to the side and it's never given like, in, in not in the same way as a romantic friendship, but I feel like it should be put up high. Like it's, it's so sacred and it's so important and it counterbalances loneliness. And I was speaking to somebody the other day and she was just like, a lot of my romance is from just hanging out with my friends, not with my partner. Like I feel romantic when I'm with my friends. And I think there's such an importance to that. And I just wanted to celebrate it. And best friendship became really a big theme of the show and accepting each other and all of your differences and sort of balancing each other out. I love it so much. And when I think about the fact that your prime audience for this show 
our children, the idea that you're setting this template that boys and girls can be friends with each other and it's not in any way sexualized or made not innocent. I should say the loss of innocence is not around sexual things uh, when it comes to their friendship. And I, I just think it's a wonderful template that you're setting. I also wanted to dive into some of the other side characters. This world is populated with yetis and monsters and vampires vampires and talking pajamas and talking food. And it really is wild and surreal. And I wondered where that kind of spirit of whimsy comes from. Is that something that you always enjoyed in terms of other cartoons or other films or books that you loved when you were growing up? Oh, yes, absolutely. When I pitched the show, it was basically an amalgamation of everything I loved when I was a kid. So there's E.T., and Gremlins and The Worst Witch and a little bit of Harry Potter, of course, and Philip Pullman, His Dark Materials. It was all sort of put in there, but it was also, I really love like Alan Watts and reading about witchcraft. And it sort of all came together that your childlike sense of wonder and that kid logic that you have, that everything could be magic. And when you close your door, your pajamas are probably coming to life. There's a monster under your bed. And I was very convinced that I was one day going to die in a vat of quicksand. Oh, no. And ghosts and beheadings and all of that stuff. I was obsessed with it as a kid. And then as you get older, you sort of realize how scary that stuff is and you kind of close yourself off to it. And I wanted that kind of open sphere that you have when you're a kid where you're like, of course, this is possible. And of course, this is how the world works, because I think like that magic is is all in the world and all in nature. And we sort of put a little wall up as we get older and just all those rituals and just everything that's just magical about the world. I wanted to put it in there, but through the eyes of the kid. And I think as we've gotten deeper into it and we've learned more about magic, everything has become a magical entity. So the aliens now represent sort of celestial magic and astrology and the yetis have become like sympathetic magic and they're about sort of emotions and like produces like and then the witches are sort of more the you know the, the spiritual magic and it's sort of building and sometimes we'll write stuff that's completely made up and then it will be able to relate it back to something that actually exists and that's really nice and it's just we're building this kind of world together that's based around ritual and, and witchcraft and but it started off just as being like I want to see the world as if I was a kid again. Yes, absolutely. One of the things that really touches me about the show, too, is that even though it does seem innocent, you're dealing with a lot of pathos and you're dealing with loss of innocence and a lot of the anxieties, not just that children have, but that adults have, too. And one of the things I really enjoy is the kind of looming presence of adolescence. You have this one excellent, I mean, they're all excellent, but this one episode, which I found really excellent about saxophone, the Yeti, as voiced by <laughs> Elijah Wood. And it really, to me, touches on this sort of fear and sadness around puberty and aging. Without giving too much away, Oscar and Hedgehog become friends with this Yeti and as he grows up, his personality changes. Is that fair to say without spoiling too much? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you have the teen witches, the three camp counselors as well, who are this older presence that are a bit of a source of anxiety, too, that the kids are <laughs> navigating. So I wondered, is that something that you guys are thinking about in the writer's room? The idea not just of childhood, but loss of childhood, too. Absolutely. I mean, the show in part was based on my short film Belly, which I made a few years prior, which was entirely based around coming of age. I had seen this picture of this girl in the back of a car with a pillow on her lap, which sort of sparked the entire idea. And I was like, 
oh, for me, this was coming of age, that moment when you fall asleep in the back of the car and your parents pick you up while you're asleep and take you upstairs and put your pajamas on and you wake up in the morning and you don't know how you got there. And then there's one day where you get too heavy mm. and parents wake you up in the back of the car and you're like, what's going on? I'm asleep. And they just like, get up, brush your teeth, put your pajamas on. And you're like, something's up, something's different and it's bad. <laughs> and that crossover to me was just like, oh, I've become an adult and I'm responsible for myself. And this whole film belly was sort of based around having this companion when you're a kid that you're so quick to get rid of and embarrassed by, which was sort of represented unconditional love and that freedom that you have because you want to grow up, especially I had an older sister. So I was so quick to be like, I want to be like you. I'll skip all of this other stuff just to be closer to you. And then you give it all up and you look back and you're like, Oh fuck, that was great. And now it's, now it's gone. And there's this sadness. And to me, it was the idea was that you carry it around in your belly for the rest of your life, like this thing that you've lost. And it sort of relates to everything other like things that are just gone, that coming of age period, or just something that transitions is that you like, you still feel it in your gut. There is like a sadness around it. Yes. Saxophone come home was definitely based on, on that sadness. And it was the one that was closest to belly. And I, I used to be just obsessed with that concept so much that sort of leaving things behind with carrying them with you. Yes. Yeah. And the witches are immortal 15 year olds. So there's also like this balance that these, these kids are going to get older but the witches are going to stay the same age. And what is that balance as they grow up? Mm, I was just watching Belly on YouTube in preparation for this. And it's such a beautiful film, Julia. And also quite a bit more melancholic and certainly visceral than Summer Camp Island is. And I, I really appreciated the way that you balance innocence with um, with darkness and with shadow. And I, I want to delve into that a little bit more after the break. We'll be right back. Oh, hello. This is Jeff and Elia from musical duo Charming Disaster. Do you enjoy songs inspired by dark fairy tales, ancient mythology, and the occult? Who doesn't? Then you should check out our new album, Spells and Rituals. Eleven songs imbued with magical properties for your musical divination. But when you come to get me, I won't feel a thing at all. The vultures that surround me ride the thermals up on high. Yeah, ever since you found me, I'm afraid that I might die. Spells and Rituals is out now on all digital platforms. And Witchwave listeners are invited to download Spells and Rituals on Bandcamp.com with a special offer. Enter secret code WITCH for an exclusive discount. That's W-I-T-C-H. Find out more at charmingdisaster.com. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Julia Pott of Summer Camp Island, and of course, many, many more things. So Julia, we were just talking about the tension between darkness and light, and there is this term that I've come up with for myself. It's kind of a category of things that I really, really love, which I call demented joy. And (laughs) under the umbrella of demented joy, I include things like the songs of David Byrne or the comics by Linda Barry, or even, you know, some Lisa Hannah Walt or Pee Wee's Playhouse. You know, this tension of everything's really bright and colorful and whimsical, but underneath it all, you know, we're grappling with death and pain and pathos. So that certainly comes through, albeit in a gentler way in Summer Camp Island, but certainly 
certainly in some of your earlier animations too. And I just wondered how you sort of approach balancing light and darkness, especially when you're writing for a childhood audience. To me, it's always been important. I think when the show first came out, everyone would just call it cute. And to me, it's kind of like a Trojan horse. There's pretty emotional subject matter in there and more so as the show progresses. And it's easier. It's an easier package to see it. And I think there is like an inoculation that you kind of want. Because I think there's this, this stigma now that kids shouldn't see anything dark and kids should always be gentle and happy until they're older. But I think if you can package this more emotional, darker subject matter when they're younger, and they can see it in a safe space and they can see how they could get through it and be plucky and like tough and be the ones that sort of fight back and be brave. When that stuff comes up later and it's real, they'll have something to reference back to. And I think Maurice Sendak does that so well. And I think there's like Steven Spielberg says that the, the two main things in childhood are insurmountable fears and a longing for happiness. And I think that balance is true. Like a kid is just like, they're learning about everything for the, for the first time, but they're so playful, but like they're worried about ghosts. That balance is so important. And I think that's, I'm not to keep harping on about gremlins, but I do love it. Um, <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was what was so great to me. Everything is so cute, but it's so dark and there's so much blood. And it's just, I, I that was my favorite movie when I was a kid. I watched it ad nauseum and it feels like you're under a warm blanket, like sort of in an ice storm. And that feels it's just the best way to watch something. It's, I think it's called the warp and woof. Is this, Alan Watts talks about this, but it's a sewing term, but it's talking about how with embroidery, there's the, the front that's all shiny and lovely. And then you turn it over and it's just a chaotic mess and you need both in order for either to exist. And I think that that balance is just so important and it just makes everything so much juicier. And it's like high-low art and just having both emotions at once makes both pop so much. I think if my show was just cute, it would be sort of too soft to watch. It would be too much. But then when there's like a little bit of emotion, it kind of takes you by surprise or something a little dark, it takes you by surprise and accentuates it. Exactly. And look, I'm in my late 30s. And as I said earlier, this is one of my favorite shows. I mean, I'm sure I'm not like the target demo for the show, but I wouldn't be engaged if it was only cute or only one dimensional. So you've done such an incredible job with the writing. A beautiful, beautiful job. <laughs> I'm interested, too, in this idea of tension in your process. I read one of the articles with you where you were talking about how you love to have a very cozy, homey studio so that you can be more liberated to explore your dark side and take more risks. And I wondered what exactly you meant by that and if that's something you were able to carry through now that you're working at Cartoon Network, not just by yourself. Oh, yeah. I mean, my office here is a pastel nightmare. There are rainbows <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> Everyone who comes in here is like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's, it's like so. Yeah, there is like a, a nesting that you need to do in order to delve into something dark. I think things that are just straight dark, I've never been able to watch them. I know they really appeal to some people, but it's just too much for me. And I always am of the mindset, like the world, especially now, is, is dark enough. We don't need everything to be so black and so dark and just stewing in juices and... I think for me, it's this, yeah, the cozy space is, is very enlivening. And I think as I get older, my first films, Belly and, and The Event, they were in that space a little bit more, stewing in that kind of darker idea. And then as I got older, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that as much. I was like, I like being alive. I like thinking about happy things. And I think there's a stigma to art that if you're not creating something dark, you're not creating something artistic. 
And that's not the right idea. I think it's nice to be playful and have fun with what you're doing and, and be having a good time and not sort of working yourself to the bone and be in a space where you feel happy. I think as a kid, I, w- I would stay up all night and I wanted to be suffering in order to create my art. And as I get older, I just don't want to live like that anymore. Exactly. I think we all kind of grow up with this idea of the artist as having this glamorous, romantic kind of death wish, right? I mean, all the alcoholic writers or drug adult artists that we grow up learning about. And then I think as at least for myself, as I've gotten older, I'm like, oh, wait, I don't have to suffer and be miserable in order to make good work. In fact, I make better work when I'm healthy and well rested and feeling, you know, relatively happy. And it sounds like you've come to that too. Yeah, the busy trap. And just like when everyone asks you how you're doing, I I read this article recently, I think it's a Swedish term called Nixon, which just means doing nothing. And it was like practice answering the question if someone says, what are you up to? Just saying nothing. Because there's such a vulnerability in that. And it feels like you always have to justify what you're up to or what you're working on. And I think it's nice to sort of live in a quieter space and, and round out your life with other things. Yeah, I just started learning how to skateboard. Awesome. <laughs> and I'm having a lovely time. But I think, yeah, I spent, I spent so much of my youth just working all the time and not really doing anything else. And I think it, it really adds to the show to be experiencing new things and going out into the world and rounding out your life with other things. Absolutely. Well, if you're anything like me, I imagine you sometimes get fatigued by asking what it's like to be a woman or femme in the industry that you're working in. <laughs> so if you'll forgive me for asking a few questions around that, though, because when I was, again, doing a bit of research, I learned that this is only the second animated show on Cartoon Two network that has been created by a woman, the first one being Steven Universe. Is that true? That is true. It's pretty wild to me. I mean, I'm thrilled that <laughs> you are there, but it's really shocking to me. And getting back to your comments about kind of cuteness and sweetness and pastels, I find that so many things that women gravitate towards are so often trivialized. I was actually reading an article about you, and it was a wonderful article otherwise, but they called your work cute but informed, as if that those were, you know, contradictory terms. So I am curious, being a woman and creating work that has witches, and I'm certain that it appeals to people of all genders and kids of all genders, but I do imagine you have a lot of girl viewers. Do you think about gender or try to make certain statements or comments on girlhood specifically? specifically in your work or even in your career as a woman? When the show first started, it was sort of pitched as Oscar is the lead and Hedgehog is his friend. And then as the show has progressed, it naturally became Oscar and Hedgehog are a balance. And then as the show progresses even more, these female characters, every time we write a new character, it's a female. And we sort of, we give these sort of braver storylines and these like more interesting storylines, sort of, they, they skew female. And we're always sort of asking the questions, well, could this be a woman? In what way could we promote women in this in this way and show them to be strong and powerful? And it's also just organic, I think, because the, our writer's room is Kent and then two other women and me. So there's three women and then Kent, who's a very gentle, lovely man. <laughs> and um, we're writing from our perspective and it just becomes natural. And then as we hire people, we hire more and more women. And I think you just, because it's got, it's led by a female creator, the show just skews in our perspective and it, it's almost like it, it isn't intentional it's not it's just naturally what's coming from our voice and our experiences and it feels very organic to write these stories and to be like 
when Susie smells her pits, like I do that. And it's, it's nice to write about it. And it's also nice to show that sometimes I feel like these female led stories are skewing so extreme. Women are just crazy all the time and doing all this insane stuff. And they're like, this all the emotions kind of bleed out. And you're just like, no, we're complex. And when we can be both, it shouldn't be stigmatized that we feel emotional or that we get overwhelmed by things or we're vulnerable or anxious. It should be celebrated and and brought into the storyline. And I think a female show creator was interesting because there isn't a a big yardstick for that at Cartoon Network. And I had to learn, like, because I'm learning from other men in the industry that are show creators. And I had to learn what my approach was and that I could be more emotional because I think I came in thinking that I should hide my emotions and be stoic. And that just isn't true to my character. And and I, I sort of had to learn that balance. And it's, it's exciting because it's a new world to be going down and it's leading the way for other female show creators to come up the ranks. But it's definitely a new space and it feels very enlivening. And I, I think hopefully soon it'll just be the norm. Yeah, giving these powerful voices to women and knowing that kids will see it and see themselves in that is, is very invigorating and it feels very good. That's so, so terrific. I love hearing about that. And, you know, to your point, I think the more women or people of varying genders that you have making things and the more characters that are female or people of varying genders that you have, that means there's less pressure for any one of them to be perfect or any one of them to have to stand for all women, right? And so you have all these complicated characters. Yeah, I think that is the stigma that you're you're the second female showrunner, so you should be the voice for all women. And you're just like, but I want to tell these specific stories about these specific women. And this is my perspective as a woman. And sometimes it feels like there's a lot of pressure and everybody's watching you. But I don't, I think that's true. That possibly is just in my head. (laughs) (laughs) I, I totally understand. I do want to highlight the alien creatures in the show who seem to me gender nonconforming or what would you say, pansexual or transcendent in their sexuality. Maybe sexuality is not the right word because it is a kid's show. Their romantic lives seem to be very <laughs> elastic and open. So Are you having those kinds of discussions in the writer's room about how to have characters that represent different genders and different relationships like that? Yes, absolutely. Every time there's a romantic relationship on the show, we'll sort of discuss the best way to, to do it and what's the best pairing. And when we were writing The Aliens, it was originally two boys. And as we sort of got further into it, we we sort of came to a conclusion that it should be they, they, them, and it's sort of he and the, they, they, them, and that they're not these non-binary aliens and that they're thousands of years old, but they speak in the voices of four-year-olds and they're sort of like more progressive than all of us. They're played by two boys and just showing that romantic relationship was just so charming. I love that episode so much. It's one of my favorites, Julia. It's really special. The song at the end makes my heart sing. It was written by Sue Kim, one of our storyboarders, and it's just so lovely. And yeah, we have a lot of same-sex relationships in, in the show now and, and the non-binary relationships. And that it just feels nice to be able to explore those storylines and be able to just play in that space. And Cartoon Network is, has never questioned it or said anything to us about it which is lovely. It's so lovely. It gives me such hope for the future and all these kids who are watching it and absorbing it, you know, whether consciously or not, it makes me really, really happy to think about. What sort of reactions have you gotten from children about the show? Oh, they're they're being so nice. It's so nice. They send little fan mail. It feels so good. If I go, uh, I went to a talk in Chicago recently. And it's honestly, there's a a lot of young boys that like that are connecting to the show, which was surprising to me. And, um, and the more gentle the episode, the more they're connecting to it. I think 
the kids coming up now, their their generation is so much more advanced than I think we ever were. And they're more accepting and more gentle and more progressive. And these little boys are coming up and they're just, they, they're drawing Susie and they're drawing all the characters and, and they're bringing like their teenage sisters who are like, my little brother got me into the show and now I really like it too. And it seems to be soothing people in a way that is kind of necessary, I think, as a kid. It's nice to be soothed and to not always be amped up. And I think it's also a very English sensibility. Growing up, a lot of the shows I watched were very gentle and slow. And there's the show called The Clangers, which is about these little mice puppets that live in space and they don't speak a language. They sort of just speak in hums and coos and it's like narrated over the top. But like barely anything happens and it's just so soothing. And when I came to America and I would, I would, I've loved Mr. Rogers, but I would watch other shows and I'd just be like, this is too much. This is too much. Mm -hmm, But you can mm -hmm. put your brain changing and adjusting to it. And I think I just wanted to create something that was more in the world of what I grew up with and what I was used to. And that just the softness and the calmness that you can live in. The world is going quicker and quicker. And with the digital age, like it's just your attention span is so much shorter. And I, the gentleness felt necessary. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think it's necessary for people of any age, certainly. And it reminds me a little bit of Miyazaki films because, you know, there will be this lingering on like ice cubes, I don't know, rattling in a glass or flower petals yes. waving in the wind. And I find that so soothing right now. I love it so much. It's the best. When this show first started, I think I had these lofty ideas that that would be the whole show was just like, long, long shots on things. And it is, it's television. So you can't really do it in the same way. And it's, yeah, it's, it's American television. But if I had my way, it would just be large. It'd just be shots of ice cubes and glasses. It's almost like it borders on ASMR. I think it's connecting with the part of your body that you don't always connect with and that needs to be soothed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Longtime listeners to the podcast know that I am obsessed with Mithras candles. They are the most beautiful beeswax candles I have ever seen, and they're handcrafted in Philadelphia. Mithras candles smell intoxicating, and they look even better with their wizardly dripped pillars. They also come in a variety of other shapes, from pyramids to tapers to tea lights, and they give off a warm and gentle glow. I have tons of Mithras candles, and I can't get enough. And now you can get some too by going to MithrasCandle.com and using offer code WITCH for 10% off your first order of 2019. So go to Mithras Candle. That's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, candle.com, and use code WITCH for 10% off your first order of the year. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Julia Pott. So, Julia, we were just talking about some of the cartoons and kids shows that you were watching when you were growing up in England. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background. First of all, where were you living in England and what kind of other shows were you interested in? And then if you could get us to how the heck you got over to America, why are you here? I mean, we're so glad you are, but how did that happen? Oh, this is a long story. It's not that long. I grew up in England in North London. Um, my my mom is from Queens and my dad is from England. So I'm, I'm half American and I have an American passport, which is how I eventually managed to move here. But I grew up on Rugrats and The Worst Witch and Clangers and Button Moon, which is a British show, which is essentially just a button on top of some 
tinfoil and then there's a Heinz tomato can is the spaceship and it's all just sort of moved around on strings and nothing really happens in that either and I loved it so much I showed it to a boyfriend 15 or so years ago and he was just like this is just a button in space and I, it was the <laughs> first time that I had realized that I just like you got to watch this show it's beautiful it's it's so well done and as a kid I thought it was just like the most glorious piece of art and he was like that the, the main character is just a wooden spoon and I was like Oh, yeah. Mm. I, I didn't see that at all. But yeah, I grew up in England. I have an older sister and I went to school for illustration and animation. And I thought I wanted to be a children's book illustrator. So I sort of did a combo course and I was learning how to illustrate. And I think that when I finally started to animate, my animation teacher said, you're an animator if you draw a picture and it doesn't seem like it's finished. You can only imagine it moving, which is how I felt. What I loved about animation when I first started it was that it felt like you could animate your feelings in a way that I, I was reading all these books and I think they're so descriptive and they will talk about like the most beautiful things that are happening inside your body and translating that to live action always felt like there was a sort of a bridge that you couldn't get over in terms of what, what's being described but with animation it felt like that it, there's an abstract space that it's in that allows you to be more playful there's this Eastern European animator who I love called Prit Pan whose animations are sort of borderline stream of consciousness but they all make complete sense and they're just so lovely to sit in and that was sort of my main inspiration. He became sort of the aesthetic inspiration for Rugrats. And it's just like this kind of juicy, morphing, like putty almost. Like in, in Belly, when Oscar gets embarrassed, because the character in that is also called Oscar, like that feeling when you're a kid where you're sort of melting into the ground when you get embarrassed. I wanted to be able to animate that. And the fact that you think that you could go through somebody's body is the quickest way to get down is logical as a kid. And you can animate that. And that sort of link is there. And that was what was most appealing to me about animation was sort of animating what it feels like to be alive and what no one's seeing bubbling underneath the surface of your body. So I, I, I started doing animation and then I went to the Royal College of Art to do my master's in animation, which is when I made Belly and then I sort of toured film festivals and got signed to a commercial agency in New York and moved there. That became the inspiration for summer camp. I felt this really raw homesickness when I first left. And it was the first time I'd really left. And I, I didn't really think about it. I was just like, yeah, I want to move to New York. I'm sick of London. And I moved and I was just like palpably homesick. Julia, when were you in New York? I moved there in 2010, I believe. I'd been moved 2010, yeah. For, and I was there for five years. Uh, before I moved to LA. Okay. And and in New York, you were feeling just ravaged with homesickness. I could understand someone feeling that way. I mean, I grew up in New Jersey and I've lived in New York for 20 years now. So it's always felt like home to me, but I could see like what a culture shock it would be from London. And, and also you're so far from your family and your friends. Even the minutiae of the post office. I was like, this is different from England and it's not better. And I was like so critical. And I was like, but I chose to move here. So I'm not sure why I'm grumpy, but I, now I miss New York. Now I'm homesick for New York. But, um, I think like that became the inspiration for Oscar. I mean, the original pitch for the show was Oscar goes to summer camp. Everything is secretly magical. And the entire show is based around him trying to get home to his mom and get the island back to it. It was originally that it was this town in Massachusetts that broke off as soon as all the parents went to a share concert in the town next door. <laughs> and, uh, and there's like no parents. There's finally no parents in town for the first time. And, and so it, it escapes. And Oscar's just trying to get home. And, and I pitched it and it was accepted. And then as we got deeper into it, they were just like, this is too sad. I do not want to watch the main character just trying to get back to his mum the entire time. But that was how I felt when I lived in, in New York. I was just like, I just want to go home. And I think the thing that I really appreciated about London after I left was that 
in the same way that witches are sort of familiar and unfamiliar, there's these really proper gentlemen that live in England that are also really into like the spiritual, like the Druids and the Freemasons and that like, like people who are into tarot. Like I gave my dad a tarot card reading for his birthday last year and he's a stockbroker and he's very lovely. And I gave him a tarot card reading and he knew what the cards meant. I was completely shocked by it, but he was just like, yes, this is what this means, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, he's really into the I Ching. I'd never appreciated that growing up. There's just that kind of spiritual energy that's rife in, in all of Europe and, and in England. Absolutely. And, you know, in writing about witches myself, so much of modern witchcraft is coming right out of England. And I think a lot of people don't realize that Wicca is a relatively new religion. They're kind of trying to recreate, I suppose, some traditions or some romantic notions of traditions. But in fact, it was just this like, amalgam of all of these different, you know, magical secret societies and ceremonial societies that were mishmashed together. So it's pretty new. I mean, Gerald Gardner was really, you know, kind of doing his work and writing in the late 40s, early 1950s. And there's, you know, certainly even before him, there's such a rich history, though, of paganism or a romantic notion of paganism that's coming out of that area. So, and I do want to get to LA in a moment, but staying in London for for another moment. (laughs) Yeah, I was curious about what kind of spirituality you were maybe brought up with or what your relationship to a bit more literal witchcraft was when you were a kid or a teenager. I was very obsessed with media witches. So Sabrina the Teenage Witch and the Worst Witch were the sort of the first signs of witchcraft that I had. And then as a kid, I started a witch group with my best friend Haley called Signifer Orbis, which neither of us know what that means or it's Latin, but we where we got it from or what it means. But we painted her room purple and we we spoke to John Lennon on the Ouija board. It was, it was, it was all we did in the witch group because I thought he was like my spiritual soulmate as a child. And that was sort of my first foray into witchcraft and understanding. And I think Buffy had come out at the time and we were both obsessed with it. And the craft, of course, was a good gateway drug for witchcraft yes. at the time. And I sort of got a lot of my witchcraft first from American media, interestingly. But my dad's sort of an atheist and agnostic and when we would get Christmas trees, he would be like, this is pagan. This is not, this isn't Christian. It's pagan. Yeah. And he would always be teaching us sort of just sort of being in, in tune with nature. I think going for walks in the woods in England and around the countryside, there's always like talk about ley lines and sort of the energy that's lying in everything. And, you know, there's Stonehenge and there's just all this spirituality around that you take for granted when you're growing up there. And Elizabeth the first, John Dee has, was an astrologer. And there feels like there's more an affinity or an acceptance of the magical in England And it sort of balances out with this properness, this like class system. And I find that so fascinating. And yeah, I think Wicca sort of became quite important in the show or just in general, that idea of being in tune with nature and using the spirits of nature as the witchcraft thing. And we sort of steered away a little bit from like demons and that kind of vibe and more about like using nature and using the spiritual. And as the show progresses, we're sort of creating these, and similarly to how Wicker is doing it, we're taking rituals from other things and putting them into the show and making this new sort of magical world with its own magical rituals. We have a lot of rituals based around time and sort of celebrating time. And we draw a lot from English witchcraft. That is our main sort of source of... Yes. Yeah, the trees have become more and more important, like looking at druids and, and all of that stuff. Yeah. Have you been to London? Oh, yeah. I, I've been there many times and I lived there very briefly due to a, a romance that did not last, but I was there oh, for the better part of a British year. British men are very difficult. It's a... Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> this was a long time ago. But I think the word pagan, that's the word that really comes to mind when I think of Summer Camp Island, because you do have these nature spirits and forest spirits and all these magical creatures. And it just makes me so, so happy to see. I was wondering, you name-checked Alan Watts a few times on your Instagram. I think I've peeked you doing some kind of little bits of magic here and there. What is your relationship to witchcraft or spirituality or magic, however you want to interpret that um, these days? Do you feel like you're a spiritual person? Absolutely. I think growing up, my mother was incredibly into astrology. And a few days after I was born, I was given my like full life chart by this astrologer that we still have in Covent Garden called Barry. If anyone's ever in London, go to the astrology shop and go to Barry. He is a genius. And so we were brought up between this like dichotomy between the proper and, and the spiritual. And I think as I grew older, I had that witchcraft foray as a kid, but I never really did anything spiritual. And in a recent astrology reading from a few years ago, it said like, now is the time that you're going to start to get more spiritual. And it was when the show started going up and I became much more fascinated in witchcraft. I've been learning tarot cards. We now want to make a tarot deck for summer camp, which I think would be really great with Oscars the Fool, I think would be really fun. Oh, perfect. Yeah, everyone fits in each category really well. We're like, it's, it's been fun sort of going through it and trying to figure out where everyone fits and sort of like learning a little bit about palm reading. I've only just started reading about that. I love that the idea of palm reading in this book that I'm reading is that you just put your hand before you really learn, you put your hand up against somebody else's and just try and feel the energy for like a month. You just keep doing this and try and feel like, where can I feel the most energy and what does that energy feel like? And I think that's what Alan Watts talks about a lot. It's like you're connected to the world, but you're not connected to yourself. So you feel other and separate from everything, but we're actually all just these fluid entities that are connected. And I have a lot of social anxiety. I get like very like if I'm around too many people for too long, I feel very detached and, and overwhelmed. And then when I think about Alan Watts and like think, oh, we're just energy that's connecting to each other. And we're all like, everyone has a different energy inside of them. And this person has a very positive energy. And this person maybe has a little bit more anxiety, but that's just how they got packaged when they were born. That makes me feel really soothed. And it makes me feel more connected to people that we're all sort of all connected. And I think in Western society, there's this, this idea that things aren't magic. But if you look back at Greek and Roman period, everyone sort of accepted magic into their lives and we've gotten less and less accepting of it. But I think bringing it into your life and accepting like, oh yes, it is spiritual and it is alive and these trees have record everything. And I think we sort of got to the point where we think that we're the most important thing here, but we're really not. I've, I've started sort of becoming more connected with that, especially with the show and learning more about magic. And I consider myself sort of a fan at the moment rather than someone that would be a true witch. I've definitely dabbled in spells and I've like made wishes to the moon and things like that. And I'm trying it all out. I feel very new, but I'm fascinated by it. <laughs> well, I am very excited because I feel like inevitably the word witch is going to be one that you take on. I mean, I don't want to project too much, but Julia, I think you're a witch if it helps. Thank you so much, Pam. That means a lot. I would love to be able to say that I was. <laughs> well, it's certainly up to you. Um, look, I know we're coming up on time. I just had one last question, which is fast forwarding quickly, you eventually get yourself to LA where you are now working for Cartoon Network. I know that you worked on Adventure Time for a little bit. And I just wanted to ask, you went from doing this solitary work, being a solitary witch, if you will, as an animator and illustrator. 
And now you're working in this group capacity in what I would think of as a coven of creativity. What has that process been like for you to go from being alone to working now in this more group environment and making your magic that way? Oh man, that's a great question. It was a huge crossover for me. Yeah, I was very used to working completely alone. And other than sound effects and things like that, I was doing everything by myself with some animation help, but it was just always alone in your pajamas. And that sort of even the idea of going out to get like a pint of milk was like very overwhelming because I was a very introverted person. I still am. And I think writing on Adventure Time for a year was incredibly helpful because it transitioned me into a period where I could be more collaborative and knew what it was like to work in a group. And I learned so much from the showrunner, Adam Muto, at the time. And going into this show, like I couldn't have anticipated it. Like someone at the time was just like, do everything now, go to the gynecologist now, get your car fixed now, you're not going to have time. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I mean, I work hard now. I know what it's going to be like. But it was, I listened to an interview with Lena Dunham and she was talking about when she first started writing on girls and they would be like, well, Lena, how would you fix this problem? She was like, well, let me go home. Let me think about it tonight. I'll come back with a solution. And they were like, no, no, you have to come up with a, the solution now. And I think that was, and she was just like, it was very jarring. And I had to learn how to do that because it wasn't what I was used to doing. And I felt the same way when I started, like it's, you're in charge of so many people and it's not necessarily what you signed up for as an artist. And I think Lisa Hanawalt talks about this as well. Like you're used to drawing and being alone and being inside of yourself. I remember going to this comic book festival when it first started, because I was looking for storyboarders and it was so invigorating because I was, I was looking at these comics and I was like, maybe this person could would be a good storyboarder. I think they would be a good fit. And I was meeting them and talking to them. And I, it was the first time that I realized like, oh, I can create this sort of coven, I suppose, of people that I respect and admire. And we're all working towards the same goal of making the show good. And it's no longer really mine. It's everybody's. And I think you spend so much of time as an individual artist comparing yourself to other people and wondering how you're measuring up. And this was the first time I could be like, oh, we can all be in this together. And no one has to compare themselves to each other because we're all working on something that we want to be great. And we can all put our personalities into this and sort of drive it together. And it felt lovely. I think the expression is at the cone of power. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Raising a cone of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When it's at its best, it feels so, so invigorating to be working in this group. And it definitely feels like what I was working towards. And it feels more natural to me than work than working alone. And now I buy cartons of milk all the time and it doesn't feel stressful. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, listen, Julia, I could talk to you for 70 more hours, but I know <laughs> you have other things to do and a really beautiful show to keep making. Thank you so much for being here. I just want to shout out that there will be a few new episodes of Summer Camp Island airing on Cartoon Network on June 23rd and a brand new season two coming out later this fall. I I cannot wait. And Julia, where can people find you online? What's the best place for them to look you up? I am on Twitter and Instagram, just Julia Pott, J-U-L-I-A-P-O-T-T. And it's just mainly Alan Watts quotes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's a pretty good one to quote. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you for spending time with me today. And thank you for Summer Camp Island. It is such, such beautiful, important, inspiring magic that you and your team are putting out into the world. And I'm very, very grateful. Thank you so much, Pam. This has been absolutely glorious. I've had the best time. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Julia Pott for sharing her time and her art with me and for just generally being a living rainbow. 
Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop me an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is produced and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs. Thank you, Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Chiquita Pascal, and David Freeman, whose podcast, The Most Haunted Boys in School, is full of supernatural hilarity and history. You can check out information about this and other Witchwave episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. And please consider buying my book, Waking the Witch, which is out now. I've also got a ton of events and appearances coming up this summer and beyond, so I hope to see you on the road. In the meantime, happy solstice. Happy summer. I'll see you back here for season three in the fall. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.